Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and at www.permanentrecordpodcast.com. Blue Zone Podcast Network presents Permanent Record, an in-depth look at the classic albums of the 70s and 80s. Albums which have earned a permanent place of honor, both in our hearts and in our record collections. I'll tell you, my friends, it has been an extremely summery weekend. The sun has been shining, birds have been singing, I've been in the pool every day, and I think that the the fact that it, this has been perfect Five Days of Summer is because of the great work we did on side one of our mixtape, our summer mixtape. Yeah, that's got to be it. Yeah, there's no <laughs> other reason that that could have happened. Jack, you think so? I didn't realize that you were a weather wizard. <laughs> well, <laughs> hey, music can do powerful things. You know the story about Depeche Mode at, at the 101 concert, Stopping the Rain with their music. Oh, yeah. We yeah. brought on the summer with our first side of our mixtape. Already then. Yeah. That's so, amazing. All right, so maybe that's not the case, but I'll tell you what is true. My name is Brian. I'm the host of the Permanent Record Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that is a fact. And I am Sarah, and I like to host it with you. And also a fact to my left, he's been my friend since I mispronounced his name in sixth grade, Mr. Colby Zell. Colby Zell. Or Colby Zell, yeah. That works. How's it going, buddy? It's going well. I uh, Thank you for coming back and sitting with us for side two of, this, of the show. I'm happy to do it. You had a good song last week. I can only imagine I'm going to love the song you picked this week. You may. <laughs> <laughs> and that laughter that you hear... That you hear uh, that you didn't recognize, maybe shame on you if you didn't, because you should be listening to his podcast, The Hustle. Uh, that is Mr. John Lamoureux. How's it going, John? Hey, everybody. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for calling back in. So, you know, we had fun with you last week, and we talked about your podcast a little bit. Something I wanted to tell you. I know that you've gotten accolades from everybody all over the world for your podcast. But <laughs> That's this, me, this Mr. May, Accolade. <laughs> <laughs> this may be the most special compliment you've ever received, because Ooh, I don't yeah. know if you know this, but every year I take about two weeks off of work around Christmas time. And over the course of those two weeks, for the past five or six years, I have found a podcast for that time period. And over the course of that Christmas vacation, I listened to like dozens and dozens of episodes of the podcast. Last year, you had the honor of being my Christmas Ooh. vacation podcast. Wow. Merry Christmas. Uh-huh. So whenever I listen to your show now, I still kind of always think about Christmas. The year before was Judge John Hodgman. Oh. Uh, one oh. year was uh, Serial. I listened to all of Serial like in like three days around Christmas. That's a very Christmassy podcast, Serial. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, last year, yep, I had a great time catching up on the hustle over the Christmas season. And in fact, it wasn't too soon after Christmas that we had a little chat on Facebook, you and I, about Tears for Fears, where I said to you, hey, is that Pat Denizio in your profile picture? And you said, yeah, it is. You should, you should check out my podcast because the guitarist from the Smithereens was just on. And I said, really, what's your podcast? And you said, The Hustle. And I was like, oh, my God, I've been listening to it for the last two weeks. <laughs> I remember that That's happening. Right. That's right. Yep, I, I think forgot about that. That's something that is cool about your show. I listened to all those episodes, even though I only knew, like, let's say I knew 50% of the guests. I probably knew more than that. But your show is always entertaining, even if you don't know the guests um, or if you don't like them. Like, for instance, the one that really comes to my mind as being a great episode that I didn't expect to like was your, your interview with John Parr. Mm -hmm. I know he had a big hit with Naughty Naughty, which I always thought was not a very good song. And Man in Motion, I, I never really cared about. That's one of my favorite episodes, actually. His story was really fascinating. Oh, good. I liked that new version of uh, Man in Motion. 
I think it was, uh, I think it tied to the Super Bowl or I don't remember. Oh, exactly. yeah, yeah. And that was actually kind of cool. But he was great to listen to. And and I was just kind of wondering, have you ever arranged an interview with, with someone that like going into it, you really didn't care? You're like, well, someone requested this and I don't really, really know about this band or I don't care much about this band. Do you ever set one up and then just get totally won over by them from hearing them talk about their career and their music? Yeah, that happens a lot because I do put it out there for people to make requests if they want. And yeah, sometimes people will request something that I'm not that familiar with or I know one or two songs or they don't really speak to me as much as they do the person making the request but i try to i try to do them treat them all the same some of my favorite and least favorite interviews have fallen along those lines i think our very best interview or our very best episode might be with the guitarist for blind melon <laughs> and this was pretty early on and i'm not even that big of a brian i mean i don't i don't own any blind melon you know i know the songs and everything but it's it's a compelling story no matter what i mean the face of your band you've just achieved worldwide fame and the face of your band the only guy anyone on the street would be able to pinpoint dies suddenly of a drug overdose what does everybody else in that band what did they do now for the rest of their life because their new reality was just pulled right out from underneath them you know and uh, so i interviewed the guitarist christopher thorne and he was so thoughtful and interesting and i really got lucky because he seemed to kind of understand the sort of stories that we like to tell it was just you don't have to like or care about blind melon to think that that was a really fascinating interesting conversation i thought yeah so true just something we touched on last time we, we mentioned that you recently talked to john oates and recently talked to terence trent darby what's his what name does he go by now sananda matreya yeah that's right and those were both two guests that ha you had said over the years numerous times they were on your dream list mm -hmm. of, of guests. How many names are left on your – do you have like a – I mean, is your, <laughs> is your dream list like really long because there's so many musicians left? I keep a list on my phone of people that I think might be interesting, and there's – two or three hundred names on that list. Among those are like a cream of the crop. You know, the people that I think to me have a really compelling story that I would love to hear. Terrence Rand Darby was one of those people. One other names that you may appreciate because they're more of like the new wave, Mark Hollis of Talk Talk, which oh, is yeah. one of my very favorite bands of all time. Right. I would love to talk to him because he just basically disappeared 25 years ago or so and has rarely been heard from. Green Gartside, the lead singer of Scritty Politi. I find him really interesting. There's a lot of people like that, you know, like, how how are you still doing it? What are you doing? How are you paying? No one's heard of, from you for years. How are you paying your electricity bill today? Is it from the royalties of Perfect Way from 1985? Or is it something else? You know, I just really want to know, you know, what these people are up to. It's almost always a fascinating story. And you yeah. recently had uh, producer Rupert Hine mm. on your show, which was a great, that was a really long episode, almost three hours long. Wow. But one of the most amazing yeah. things about that show was that it, <laughs> it featured questions from both myself and That's my right. friend Colby Zell. That's right. So thanks for getting there. You contributed to that one. You bet. I know that it was long, but that was one of my favorites. because That was a great one. Every name that I threw at him, he came back with some totally fascinating story that I had no idea about. So it was never boring. I didn't think anyway. Yeah, I didn't think so either. I thought it was great. What did you think, Colby, where he tried to take some some credit for the darkness of the album Phantoms, an album that you and I discussed? Yeah, well, the thing that was crazy to me was that basically his answer on that question made it sound like everything I assumed about that band was completely wrong. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. 
Well, let's keep assuming it. What are you doing over there? I was trying to find where we are. <laughs> I'm falling apart. I'm losing it, guys. My my iPad still shows me exactly where I am. <laughs> I'm old school. I have everything on paper. Paper. I have paper for this thing, too. Good man. <laughs> so let's get started on side two of our summer mixtape. Personally, I think we had a great start to side one. So let's see if we can follow that up on side two. Colby's going to start us off. And what you got for us? So again, reaching into the uh, tapes that I stole from my older sister. Okay. <laughs> um, a lot of people may not remember that in the mid 80s, there was, in America at least, you didn't listen to the radio in certain parts of the country. It would be different than other parts of the country. There would be certain regional things that would happen and you would get exposed to certain types of music. But a lot of things that we were all missing was stuff that was happening in England that was all very, very cool at the time. And when you would get like into a record store, you'd sort of browse some of that stuff and you would find it and you would buy like an entire album without having any idea. Yeah, that's true. That's what my older sister did a lot of. She bought albums just to see what it was about and then she would just leave them in this bin and uh, I would start stealing stuff and it would become mine. And this particular band, it was a band, I'm going to try to pronounce it properly. Uh, we're going to go with Blamange. Yes. Nice. Nice. Well done. Thank you very much. And uh, it took a lot of effort. Basically, their album Mange 2 was the one that I stole and this song was one of two that I found really, really cool on the album. This is called Don't Tell Me. How can I be sure you're breaking all the rules? How can I be sure I should be high above? I climbed the mountain, reaching for the skies. And all too soon I jumped the moon and find I'm losing my mind. Don't tell me I'm the howling wind. Don't tell me you're the wounded star. And that's Don't Tell Me. This is a two-piece band, surprisingly. There's a lot of sound going on for just two guys putting music together, but it's Neil Arthur singing, and Stephen Luscombe is the uh, musician, keyboardist, drum machine guy. Multi-instrumentalist. So it's like erasure. Very Mm. much like that. And the interesting thing, which is something that harkens back to last week when I said that uh, Vince Clark was lying when he said he didn't know people. Oh, right. Neil recently had an interview, when I say recently, it could have been sometime in the last four years, but uh, he was talking about the fact that he and Steven had gotten together and they had started trying to do new things again and they were remembering old times. And when they started, they actually formed a band in 1979. They had a third member, but he left very, very quickly. And it was just the two of them. And they somehow, through complete fortune, luck, happenstance, they ended up on a tour with Depeche Mode. Oh, wow. And this was the Vince Clark era of Depeche Mode. And people were big fans of Depeche Mode and nobody knew who the Blamage were. And they just kind of glommed onto it and they got hit with a lot of early success without really feeling that they'd earned it. The thing that I appreciate about everything that I have read about these guys is that their music very much sort of comes from the type of attitude that they had about it the whole time, which is they were excited to be musicians. They were were happy to do it. There was obviously a business aspect to, to get them to the point of success that they reached, but obviously the sound that they make is just very effervescent is a good word that I come up with when I think of their music. Like, I like that. They just sort of are happy to be there. When I said that you would appreciate them, they became friends with Vince Clark from that tour. And then they started to get some fame on their own, right? And they attempted to do sort of a combination recording session with Yaz. And apparently it 
ended up in failure because all that happened when they were in the recording studio was that they just kept on laughing. (laughs) (laughs) And that there were some tracks that were held, but they're basically barely music because people keep on just cracking up. Oh my gosh. And Neil Mm. says that he still has recordings, but he would never release them because they're just ridiculous. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, That's funny. They couldn't make music because they were having too much fun. That's crazy. What a good story. Oh, and I was also a victim of something that Sarah mentioned last week. She talked about uh, how Wikipedia lies. Uh, I was under the impression that the entire album, Manch 2, was produced by John, I think it's pronounced Longo. He was actually considered to be a pretty heavy-duty disco producer. And there are songs on that album that definitely give you that sort of vibe. Mm -hmm. But this particular song was actually produced by Peter Collins. And if that name sounds a little generic for it to necessarily ring a bell. Yeah, I don't recall it. No, it sounds familiar for some reason. Yeah, because yeah. he's worked with Bon Jovi, Billy Squire, Rush, Air Supply, oh. Alice Cooper, Nick Kershaw, Suicidal Tendencies, <laughs> Queensryche. Wow. Oh, yeah. Indigo Girls, The Cardigans, <laughs> Tracy Ullman. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. Mm. I like her. It's a pretty ridiculous yeah. list. So, yeah. yeah, he's pretty prolific producer. And for whatever reason, he recorded this particular song uh, with them. And uh, it's definitely kind of rich. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. For kind of a happy-go-lucky little song. Yeah. I think you hear their, the happiness that you like. You mentioned that they're just so happy to be yeah. working musicians. I think you hear that in the music. You see that in their silly performance in their video that uh-huh. we'll talk about. They do seem to be like two guys who just appreciate their lot in life. Right. The other song that I almost picked for this is the other song that I really like off that album called Blind Vision. And it's got this real sort of like austere feel to it. And yet they screw up the lyrics in the middle of the song. Like <laughs> like they sort of stammer through it. Uh-huh. And, and it's that little hint of their sort of like wry kind of humor in the middle of a song that's kind of bleak. That's the kind of thing that makes me sort of appreciate them. But uh, this particular song, I've always just liked the way you put it on and a few seconds later you're like, happy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This has a a great vibe to it. Probably my favorite Blamage song. I don't know. I think this sounds like it could have been written by Vince Clark. A lot of mm. the keyboard riffs. I mean, that one that just goes through the whole song. Doo, 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 doo. It's so catchy. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, that's what Vince does. There's just a lot of really good little, bump, 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 you know, that kind of stuff right, right, going on. Right. It's like very Vincey, in my opinion. Yeah, I sort of understand where you're coming from. This is one of my very favorite songs of all time, by the way. I think, I feel like I say that a lot, but I really mean it. <laughs> and, <laughs> but, uh, so I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, which sounds like it should be Nowheresville, but actually has a very vibrant, alternative radio presence still does to this day so this was one of those songs that i would hear on alternative radio periodically but i'd never picked up on who it was or what it was called or anything and i remember one night late late at night i'm dozing off and i'm watching a movie this is around 2001 but the movie was called no man's land from 1987 it's a movie with charlie sheen and db sweeney oh wow something to do with uh, charlie sheen's running some kind of like like he steals cars and D.B. Sweeney's an underground undercover cop. Anyway, they get to be friends. Anyway, there's a nightclub scene and this song is played during that nightclub scene. Wow. And I still remember I'm on the couch and I'm almost asleep and I hear this song and I immediately perk up because it's like I've been wondering for years. Who is this? Where does this song? What's it called? How do I get it? So at that moment, not only did it become one of my favorites, but the joy of like discovery at two o'clock in the morning, as <laughs> right. it goes off, oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Just added to the magic of it. Yeah, I one love of this song so much. The greatest things I think is when you can rediscover forgotten yeah. favorites and forgotten music. That is just like such a a thrill, such a rush. 
Yeah. And you know, it's one little thing, and this is just a tie to a song I believe Brian's going to pick later. That sound that you sang a minute ago, Sarah, that do, 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 do. Whatever instrument that is played, I know it's on the keyboards, but whatever sound that is Mm -hmm. has always reminded me of the beginning of Gratitude. Oh, yeah. We're going to talk about a little bit later. It sounds almost like a pipe organ. Yeah, hollow pipes. Yeah. Yeah. Something. You know what I'm saying? Uh Yeah, I do. Yeah, Uh, exactly. So that sound in this song is one of my favorite recorded noises in history. I just, every time I hear it, it warms my heart. Oh, that's great. They do have a lot of really good electronic voices. Like you said, the, especially the the really, yeah. really quick thing. I right. like that too. Pretty, it is kind of insane. I can I can see why you would say that. Good drum programming as well in this song. Mm-hmm. It's a nice rhythm track. Yeah, I and think. this uh, this made it all the way to number eight in the UK. Wow, and never made it here. No, no. <laughs> boo. Was it, I wonder- Salt Lake City Radio was playing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we heard it on an alternative radio. That's cool. Just like you said, different parts of the country had yep. different songs. Yeah. Exactly. We yep. weren't getting that. They, I don't know what we were getting. <laughs> we are getting poison. <laughs> <laughs> hooters. Yeah, the Hooters. Oh, yeah, we did have the Hooters. Sure. They were pretty cool. You did come here today on a mission to make me appreciate this band more. Right. Because we had talked about it, and I said, like, they were not really one of my favorites. Right. And I do like your story. Like anytime you can include Vince Clark in something. I do like this song. When they play them on First Wave, they generally play this song or they play one called Living on the Ceiling. Yeah. Which I turn off immediately because (laughs) firstly, it reminds you of Dancing on the Ceiling, which isn't any good either. (laughs) And Living on the Ceiling doesn't make any sense. Mm -mm. So what? I don't know. I just don't like it. (laughs) But when I was going through the CD to get this song sample, I listened to a bunch of other songs. And do you know the song called God's Kitchen? I think that was their first single. Okay. It's an early, early, early one. Well, I love that song too that was really good as well so if you like the group is it Blancmange Blancmange we don't say the C okay that's that's where I screwed up okay well if you like this (laughs) musical duo (laughs) check out that one too because I thought it was pretty good I love living on the ceiling the words are so ridiculous that's the one about why are you up a tree (laughs) oh yeah right yeah (laughs) why are you down there (laughs) and apparently when they Fred Schneider could sing those words for sure for folks that don't know because I didn't I just read this recently Blancmange is actually like a dessert Uh uh-huh oh I didn't know that yes it is stop being excited over there Sarah (laughs) (laughs) she loves dessert (laughs) I do love dessert (laughs) she loves it especially because it's a, a dessert that very much resembles a dessert I hate with a passion which one flan Flan. He doesn't mm. like flan. Is that like creme brulee? It is, except it has a soft caramel top instead of a hard caramel top. So the reason why I hate flan so much is because I originally grew up in Florida. And because of the, the extreme amount of uh, Latin influence, the school lunches would actually serve a lot of like Latin-inspired stuff. And okay. school lunch flan may be the worst mm. thing you could possibly consume. <laughs> And it totally made me hate it for life. You so. should have just taken a torch with you to school and then uh, <laughs> oh, sure. fried the top of it with your torch and had creme brulee because creme brulee is delicious. But the reason why I mention all that is because yeah. every album cover that Blamage ever did has like the dessert included in the cover. Yeah, it's like yeah. A, a milk pudding kind of thing. And when they first started coming, trying to get a foothold in the States, people would always ask them if it was based on a Miley Python sketch because apparently there was some sketch of people playing tennis with Blamages. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> that I don't know about. And it was from one episode of The Flying Circus that neither member had ever seen, so they couldn't understand why they thought that it had anything to do with Miley Python. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Oh, that's too funny. Wow. This is a great episode of our dessert podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then the video that they did for uh, Don't Tell Me is a bunch of footage 
kind of looks like a vacation video. Yeah, it and does. It's because it kind of is. They just managed to get a camera and they went down to a festival that was not anything to do with them in Valencia. Is apparently the festival is called the Fire or Las Falas or Fias, I guess it's called. So all of those people aren't there as like extras or stuff. They're people just trying to enjoy <laughs> themselves at some sort of a uh-huh. regional festival, and they were. <laughs> Just filming them. Filming with impunity. Oh, I love it. I thought that that looked like Spain. The, the women, the way they were dressed with those headdresses and right. the skirts that looked very much like Spain. That's a really cool. But they're, they're so sweet. You know, they're like kind of smiling shyly at the guys and kind of bopping along. And they don't seem to mind at all. Right. That they're, you know, in this video, which maybe they didn't even understand they were in a video. I don't know. <laughs> they knew. <laughs> But yeah, they're lip syncing lines and they just start to smile as they're doing it. Yeah. Right. Did you notice that they were standing in front of a sign that said Depeche Mode? Yes. No, I didn't see that. I did. Oh, I didn't see that. I did. did. I saw that. Yep. So I assumed it was a Depeche Mode festival that they filmed it at. No. Huh. <laughs> no. <laughs> huh. No, the people that go to Depeche Mode festivals don't generally look like they're from <laughs> oh. doing traditional Spanish dances. True, and way more black clothing. Yeah. It's a, it's a fun, cute little video, and it kind of is kind of random right. as far as, the, yeah, what are these Spanish ladies around? It's just because that's where they were. Yep. That's awesome. It's a fine video. I think the song's better than the video well yeah agreed how do you like neil arthur's vocals here brian they're fine they're not bad he's not a bad singer in this song there there are songs on the greatest hits where his voice really bothers me yeah this is a good song i enjoy the song like i said i leave it on the radio okay in the uh bit that i read from neil he doesn't consider himself to be a great vocalist at all he considers himself to be the only one that was willing to do it okay (laughs) just like by default you're the guy fair enough well, I think this was a great choice to kick off the first side. Well, yeah, that's thank a, you. That's a great first song. Very summery. Yeah. Yes, it is very summery. So who's up next? Well, I think it's me. So the next song I have for you is a few years later, and it's from uh, 1986, as a matter of fact, from a Glasgowian group called Hipsway, and the song is The Honey Thief. Through the heat. Come on, come on, pass through the heat. A honey thief I'm a thief A honey thief Okay All right, The Honey Thief. That was released in 1986 from their debut album titled Hip Sway. The song got to number 17 on the UK singles chart and number 19 on the Billboard Hot 100. That blows my mind. Once again, I have no recollection of this song being on Top 40 Radio. I know, and it was number 19. I don't remember it at the time either. I actually do. You do? Yeah, I I remember that chorus. Well, that's good. I mean, it didn't stick in my head if I did hear it on the radio, but I heard it later, and I really liked it. I definitely didn't realize what a perverse song it was, though. (laughs) (laughs) True. (laughs) Well... In addition to it getting to number 19, I'm not going to go there yet. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk a little more about the facts before we delve into that. (laughs) But a remix of this song got to number nine on the U.S. Dance Club play chart. And in addition to the U.K., the song also reached number 17 in Italy. And it got to number 20 in Ireland. So it did pretty well in several different countries. This was, of course, their biggest hit and maybe, for the most part, their only hit. They had this, this one album. They got together and they did a second album. As they were putting that together, there were lots of problems with the record company and the label. And by the time that the album was released, 
the band had basically broken up. Did I get that right, John? Yeah, that's right. And I don't know that the second album, which is called Scratch the Surface and isn't very good, I don't know that it ever got a wide release. I think it may have just trickled out in certain places. Yeah, I did see it got released, but I don't know to what extent. So they kind of just disappeared from music, at least as hip sway. Until like the past six months. That's right. I found out that John had interviewed the lead singer of the band, Graham Skinner, and talking with him, uh, Graham wasn't all that excited about the idea idea of doing uh, any kind of reunion. But then that was in, um, I want to say like March of 2016, that that interview took place. And lo and, lo and behold, later that year, later that very same year, Hipsway reformed and mm-hmm. went out on tour. So, yeah, so and John, still doing it. Yeah. So can you tell us a, a little more about that, John? I hate to keep saying this, but this is one of my favorite songs of all time. <laughs> <laughs> this <laughs> is like... Greatest- your favorite mixtape ever, I it, think. It really is. Get rid of the assembly, and this is like 100%. Anyway, just kidding. No, I stand by. I think this is one of the greatest singles of all time. And I say that specifically because, unfortunately, I don't know the band was capable of doing a lot of other things as good as this song is, but this song is just the best. And I remember it when it came out. I loved it a lot. So I had sought out their lead singer, Graham Skinner, to get on the show. And when I found him, he had uh, recently started a job managing a cafe in Glasgow. And I think that he might have been going through a little bit of a depression, maybe, because of this. Uh, I don't know for sure, because I had found some articles that were written on, for local publications about him doing this. I know that when the band broke up, he went. He tried many other bands. He was in a band called Witness that is excellent kind of more like primal scream rolling stones a little more rocket you could make an excellent excellent mixtape of just stuff that graham skinner has been involved in and he should have somewhere along the way some of it should have hooked somewhere and it just never did and so he seemed very kind of mellow and a little depressed when i interviewed him and so it's another one like you had mentioned brian that i kept kind of short because he wasn't giving me a lot and didn't seem to want to get too introspective. But a few months later, they were back. And um, last November, uh, sort of on a whim, I flew out to Scotland to hang out with my production partner, Yan. We went and saw one of the strangest triple bills I've ever seen. The Tubes, then the Mission UK, and then Alice Cooper. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, that was the show. And (laughs) since I had had Fee we had had Fee Waybill from the Tubes on our show. We wanted to go to the show. I didn't Mm -hmm. get in for free or anything. But um, while I was there, I let Graham Skinner know that I was going to be in town and he offered to meet up with us at a pub in Glasgow. And so Graham Skinner and now Yan and I are neither of us drink. And so I had a Coke. Yan had an urn brew or whatever that orange drink is that's unique to Scotland. And Graham <laughs> had a couple beers and we sat and shot the breeze for a while. And he's not particularly any more animated when he's a rock star than he is when he's the <laughs> manager of a cafe. But I did learn I did learn that that's just sort of the Glaswegian way, I think. They're all just sort of mellow and, you know, not super animated. Very nice, 
probably fine. You probably don't have to worry about them. But anyway, he was a, uh, it was, you could tell that he had found a new lease on life and was much happier being the front man of a band. And one last little tidbit about this. Yan and I were walking back to the car. We walked past the tube station and on the wall of the tube station was a giant poster for Hipsway and their upcoming concerts. And I just thought, how cool that the guy on this poster, I just hung out with him in a pub in Glasgow of all places. That's yeah. cool. I think that's awesome. And I really wonder if you interviewing him just a few short months earlier and how the, the interest and admiration you expressed for him and his music, I wonder if that kind of helped get him inspired to rejoin his way and seek out that lifestyle again. Because I've wondered that too. I don't know that I can take that much credit, but I'm so glad. The guitarist in our band is a guy called Pim Jones, and he went on to work with Roger Daltrey for a while. And anyway, they're they're a great band. They're, I think there's even a pledge music or a Kickstarter campaign or whatever going on out there right now to fund their new album. But I'm just I'm glad that he's out there. He's I can't stress it enough. I will make you a mix CD and mail it to you, whoever you are that's listening, of all the good stuff that Graham Skinner has done uh, over the course of his musical career, because it's all good. It just didn't become popular. Yeah, the bits that you would play during the episode, a lot of those sounded really good. And I was pretty impressed. You know what I would like to think happened when you guys Mm. left the, the pub, you and your friend went to the left and you saw that big poster. And because you were focused on the poster, you didn't see this happen. But uh, Graham went out the door and turned to the right. And as he left the pub and headed back home, he moved and walked exactly like he does in the video for for the the (laughs) (laughs) And it's Brian's loony vision time. Oh, my gosh. Just walking down the sidewalk like that. Yeah. Um, Well, so do we want to talk about the video now? That is quintessential 80s stuff going on right there. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I, oh. It's so funny. It starts off with this grid with multiple images sliding around on it. And some are squares and some are rectangles. And there's images from all over the world. And they're interspersed with images of the band playing in a white room with different colored lights. But the camera mostly focuses on Graham Skinner. Or should I say Graham Spinner? (laughs) Because I think he spins around more in that video than I've seen Dave Gaughan spin in all the concerts that we've seen him in (laughs) combined. He is just spinning and, and just dancing and grooving like a crazy man but i gotta say as i was watching this he kind of reminded me a lot of uh 1986 87 era brian <laughs> yeah i was i was thinking that too when we when i watched it so so let's let's compare graham at the time and brian at the time uh the haircut black shirt oversized sport jacket and then the jeans and I'm pretty sure there's a video of you dressed exactly like that, Brian, mm. where you're like along the side of your house and you're bopping around. <laughs> yeah, I was dancing a little bit like that. Yeah, and, and those those, dan- those those smooth dance moves, including the spinning. You did some spinning too. I did. Uh, and a lot of cool arm waving thingies. And I'm not sure that it was cool. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah, I just I just I was smiling as I watched Graham Skinner dancing all over the place because it just kind of re- it was fun to watch and it reminded me of you. And then. And there's always one of my favorite things, guys in long overcoats, which I always enjoy. Oh, yeah, that's like, cool, too. You know, he's walking down the street with his cool overcoat, you know. It's cool, but I was totally shocked by by what he looked yes, like. Yes, he's, he's this like... This band Rick... doesn't look at all like I was no. picturing they would. I was, mm. I this whole time, pictured just kind of like a big, gruff, long-haired, bearded guy who was like singing <laughs> these words ironically. He... Like, <laughs> like, and uh, when I saw him, I could not yeah. believe it. Like, especially it's... after hearing your interview with him, oh, no. John, I was like... 
that's the guy. Oh my right. god! He he look he sounds very well. Of course, he's older in the interview, but he's like Rick Astley. Yeah, where his face and his voice don't go together at all. Yeah, you know, at least in this era. And he in the video, I think he does some of the stuff that we just talked about in your video, Colby. Where I think there's a couple times where he stops himself from like laughing as he's lip syncing some of the words, doing his dance moves and stuff. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. They they were much less serious than I thought they were going to be. Well, I mean, I think the rest of the band is trying their utmost to just stay professional and keep playing, and he's just going blah blah blah. The the look of the rest <laughs> of the band put me in mind of one of your fistapop bands, John. Mm-hmm. The way they look, I thought they look sort of like Johnny Hates Jazz or Breathe or something like that. I completely agree. Uh-huh. And I'm gonna mention more about that here in just yeah. a minute. Yeah. Now, what do you think about Graham Skinner's voice in this song sounding a little bit like Billy Idol? Hmm. Can you see that Whoa. or hear that? If I've you- never thought of that, but maybe. When I listen to it, I think some of the ways he's delivering the song, the vocals, I think I hear a Billy Idol kind of vibe going on. And there are times in the video where he almost looks like he's sneering a little bit. Mm-hmm. So just to throw that out there, go back and watch it again. See what you think. I try not to think about Billy Idol. I thought he sort of looked like a tall, lanky, slightly high version of James Franco. Oh, mm. oh okay. That's interesting. Okay. Interesting. What's your problem with Billy Idol? I just don't like him. Wow. Okay. That interesting. Weird. Billy Idol's great. He's great. <laughs> oh, finally, John and Colby on the same page with something. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Colby. Oh, well, no, because you both love the Blamage song, so that's good. That's true. Yeah. I think this song is just fantastic. I know this is John, an amazing song. John has already talked it up a lot, but since it's my choice, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk it up a little bit too because I think it has a really wonderful mix of sounds. There's so many different sounds. We've got you know horns and strings and guitar and organ and all kinds of stuff. Now a lot of it I know is just keyboards making those sounds, but it just has a very full sound and I think everything works really well together and it's very well arranged. It's just a it's just the complete package. You know, we got that really great vocal too. So that's my opinion. I like the song. I just think that it's interesting how it made me feel very nostalgic for when an overly sexual song was done through innuendo as opposed to just being blatant. Oh. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, if you listen to it, it's very obvious what they're getting at, but it's just interesting that back in the day, people would sing songs where they would attempt to hide it just a little bit. And right. Don't bother doing that anymore. No. Nope. Yeah. I'm going to be face. honest, I have never picked up on like hardcore so- sexual innuendo in this song. And in fact, when I interviewed him, and I haven't listened to it since it came out, Sarah, so you may remember. Yeah. Isn't the song, doesn't it tie back to a painting it or does. something he saw? It does. It, it, I don't remember it actually having to do with well, sex or if anything. you recall what the subject of the painting was, I I, and I didn't go and look it up, but um, he said that this painting was in a, a Glasgow art museum and the title of the, ca- the painting was Cupid and the Honey Thief. They thought, oh, well, what would that a song about that be mm. like? So I have to go look that up. I don't know if I can find that exact picture or that painting that inspired them. But I think there is definitely, I mean, Cupid's involved. So, you know, there's some kind of a, a love type vibe going on. This is another one of those songs, though, where I could only ever make out about 50% of the lyrics because I couldn't really understand the accent. everything. Yeah. yeah, the way he's singing. And so I got an education looking them up online. I never knew what the first line of the chorus was. And now I know it's the light of deep regret. Let me see what I don't get. Right. I still don't exactly know what that means, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll say one of the worst lines on the song is, I come to steal with stealth in the night. <laughs> 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 that's just a little redundant. <laughs> oh, okay. So as we're talking here, Colby brought up a picture of, uh, oh my, the, <laughs> of, the, of the picture of the artwork in question. And Can I see it? 
Yeah, I think if you go look at that, you'll see there is a definite theme going on. It's Cupid the Honey Thief is the actual title. Okay. I, uh... I'm just clearly too naive. Aww. You know, I just uh, haven't lost my innocence like Aww. old Colby over there. Yep. <laughs> dirty mind. Hey, I, I never really got the vibe from him, you know, myself. But, you know, once he started talking about, oh, yeah, okay. And if you know the song Honey for the Bees by Alison Moyet, then you can kind of also make that connection. That Honey for the Bees, sugar never was so sweet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you know that song, then you knew this song, then... Okay, I get it. Peter Gabriel's whole riff on that with the sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. Where he's like, open up your fruit cage. Oh, uh-huh. oh dear. <laughs> I yeah. forgot about that. Yeah, that's where okay. my brain immediately goes, oh, <laughs> they're being nasty. Okay. It's all very subtle and clever and veiled and yeah, and, and sweet. Just right. in a way, you know, in a days gone by era. Yeah, you could be 12 and listening to this and nobody would think a right. second thing about it. Right. Until your, you know, your friend says, oh, by the way, this is what this means. And you're like, holy God. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have let our son hang out with that Colby. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, in keeping with this sort of sophistopop genre that we're in right now, and I got to say, it is uh, just like the guiltiest of guilty pleasures of mine. I love like Swing Out Sister and Johnny Hates Jazz and Hips Way and Breathe, the band I'm about to talk about, and Curiosity Killed the Cat and all those kinds of bands that were big in like 1987. That was it. And they all came from England and they all had horns and wore, you know, uh, they looked sophisticated. Uh I love that sound back then. (laughs) I still do. Own it, man. Yes, I still do. So the band I'm going to talk about is called Breathe. And in the States, we know them primarily from two gigantic ballads. At the time, one was Hands to Heaven and the other was How Can I Fall? Your show didn't seem like a ballad type show, so I didn't pick one of those to talk about, even though it would have been easier because they were huge hits. Uh, Little did you know he was going to pick Never Never, which is like the the lullaby. Yeah, the lullaby. Well said. That's exactly what that is. Anyway, so I went with a different song off Breathe's first album from 1987, All That Jazz. Uh, This song is called Jonah. That song only reached number 60 in the UK. So I'm guessing nobody has any kind of history of having heard that song on the radio. People in the UK barely have a history of hearing that song. (laughs) Yeah, if it only got to number 60. Yeah, but it was released as a single, and there are a couple of videos, neither of which are very good. We can talk about those in a minute. Uh, Something that was kind of interesting about Breathe is that this song and some of the others on that album were actually recorded in 1985 and they weren't having any luck getting the rest of their songs 
produced in a way that they were happy with. And so everything was kind of sitting on the shelf. And eventually, finally, in 1987, they brought on a, a producer named Bob Sargent, who had had a lot of other success with some of my favorite bands like Haircut 100, The Specials, The English Beat. And uh, he produced, helped produce the rest of the album. And it was completed and it became a pretty decent sized hit. That album reached number 34 in the States, I believe. That song in particular, though, that we just heard was produced by a guy named Chris Porter, who also worked with Wham, Hall & Oates, Blamange, Flock of Seagulls, Robbie Neville, and he worked on one of my all-time favorite albums, which is The Verve's Urban Hymns, the song with Bittersweet Symphony on it. Mm -hmm. I've just always liked this band, that first album, All That Jazz. I love the organic. I don't know if those are real horns or there are some played on synthesizers. I don't care. It sounds organic to me. The funky bass sounds organic to me. I love any song that's got, you can tell that the backup singers are black ladies. They just got (laughs) such a great specific specific unique sound to them and so here's these you know white guys in sport coats with very big shoulder pads and <laughs> you know very perfect hair <clears throat> that they're their heads are triangles very perfectly. I always, I don't know about you guys, but when I was growing up, I wanted to look like that so badly. <laughs> I think that's why it wasn't until I was a grown up that I came around to hair metal and 80s hard rock and stuff like that. Because when I was growing up, I didn't want to look like that. I wanted to look like the lead singer Breathe. I remember being in a Burlington coat factory with my parents and seeing a shirt that was paisley, had a paisley print on it, and I wanted that shirt so badly because it looked like the guy from Green. <laughs> I was going to button it up to the top all the way, yep. and I was going to do my hair just so, and my dad was like, John, you would, you will not like that shirt. I guarantee it. Like, no one will want, you will not want that shirt. And uh. he wouldn't buy it for me, and I was so bummed. I was like 14 years old, and uh. you know, I was like, no, this shirt is going to make me cool. Anyway, I saw... I saw myself in bands like Breathe, and I know that they are cheeseball today. I know that, no, you know, they've lost, they don't have credibility. It's not edgy or cool or fun or anything like that. But when you're a kid and you're looking for images that you can relate to, that you can aspire to, that you can say, that's what I want to look like. That's who I want to be. Bands like Breathe, for whatever reason, <laughs> Breathe and Neil Finn of Crowded House, ah. they were, that was my look. I wanted to, I wanted a short hair with a triangle shaped head so badly. <laughs> and so, uh, I love it. Uh, I love it. My school picture for my uh, junior year of high school is so frightening. I had long bangs and my shirt's tied up to my, you know, I don't have any hair now, but my shirt's buttoned all the way to the top. I just look like an idiot. I'm sure my pants pants were pegged, you know. Oh yeah, of course. All all that kind of stuff. But anyway, I've just always had a real soft spot for Breathe and this first album specifically. They put put out a second one in 1990, I believe, called uh, Peace of Mind. It's way more like adult contemporary, not not that this music isn't. I was going to say more than this. Yeah, more than this even, believe it or not. So I just think this song is really funky. It's track one on the album, so it launches it in a really nice way. I'm not expecting anyone else to like this song but me, but I love it. And I'm picking this band because I want to tell you more about the lead singer, David Glasper, after we go around and you guys crucify me and this song. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to go first because what is the big idea? 
We have you on this show, and the first thing you do is you pick a song that says, Sarah, Sarah, my misfortune never looked so sweet. And for Sarah, Judgment Day will come again. Poor Sarah. I know. Yeah. Technically, it's the second thing he did. The other song was last week. Well, I, yeah, true. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, one of the first things. Yeah, so I heard those, because I thought, well, wait, this song is called Jonah, and I just heard Sarah. I was really wow. confused. And then, of course, they said Jonah immediately afterwards. But yeah, what is that all about? However, having said all that, I actually did enjoy the song. I, it is super oh, it's super funky and jazzy. It is kind of in the same vein as Hipsway. I can see why you wanted to talk about it after Hipsway, because it has kind of got that same, you know, funky, organic vibe to it. Maybe pseudo-organic, as we've discussed, yes. but it's still it's still good. And yeah, I, I don't know that I will ever go out and buy Bree's Greatest Hits or whatever, but... If I come across this again, I will I will listen to it. Good. This was an era. It's funny that you were uh, very, very into that look because I probably wasn't too far away from it either mm-hmm. uh, when I was in high school. I was wearing like uh, suit jackets and printed shirts with pop collars. And- right. <laughs> yeah. I think you pegged your pants too. <clears throat> oh, yeah. But uh, the music of this particular era, I wasn't I wasn't feeling. And, and the funny thing was is that I was really into like the uh, mid-80s alternative sounds and stuff like that and I and I liked all the things that just a few people liked at the time and not the Bon Jovi's and the the stuff that everybody was really into but like this particular phase the 87 like that that brassy stuff mm-hmm. like just yeah. passed you by huh? it, it wasn't that I didn't I didn't have no appreciation for it I just I don't know it just wasn't something that I was really feeling and it, it was also it was also I was sort of kind of in between like I had sort of faded off of the uh, the ultra voxes and the Depeche modes and all that kind of stuff and I was st- sort of still trying to figure out what I wanted from music mm-hmm. and I wouldn't really figure that out until probably 88, 89 when I started getting really into hard rock, really into heavy metal. Yeah, so there was like a three-year period where I wasn't really looking for anything. Now I listen to it, and I can appreciate the musicianship of it. This song doesn't make me feel like last week when I was beating you up for uh, B-52s. This song song is something like I can go, oh, okay, I I remember this era. I didn't like it at the time, but I I would listen to this now. I I, I think this is a cool song. Good. I guess I'm sort of like you. Like, I had nothing against these bands. I remember, like, Blue Nile and Danny Wilson, who I just found out today is a band and not a guy. Yep. Um, <laughs> Johnny Hates Jazz. Johnny Hates Jazz, I, I got really tired of um, Shattered Dreams, but the follow-up to that, the second single, was really good. I can't think of what it's called. But like, you know, we were talking about how different areas of the country had different musical interests. The mm-hmm. area where my sister lives now, which is where my grandparents lived, it's about two hours away from my house, that area seemed to really embrace... This sound, my cousin and his friends were really into Basha, uh, yeah. uh, Baza, is that how I say it? Yeah. And um, Johnny H. Jazz was always on the radio up there. That's so right. was Breathe. And like that, just two hours away, I guess they probably, you know, they had to have got played that they had number two and number three hits. How can I fall hands to heaven? But it just seemed like it was much bigger two hours yeah. away from my house. It was yeah. kind of weird. So mm-hmm. it was it was not something that I latched on to, but. I had nothing against like I probably hated Colby's heavy heavy metal music way more than than I hated this song. And when I listen to it now, if you took out that little bridge, I'm gonna call it a bridge, the part between the verse and the chorus where all of a sudden the there's a lot of sound behind his singing. Uh-huh. Um, it's like the lyrics, uh, when she's dressed to kill, have you the strength of mm-hmm. will, that part. I don't like that part for whatever reason. Mm. But if you took that out and left me with the verse and chorus, I think this would be a pretty great song. I would probably listen mm. to it. So if you can, I don't know, maybe Shep Pettibone can make a mix <laughs> where he cuts that out. <laughs> 
And I'll, I'll put it on heavy rotation. And I should clarify, I didn't own this album when it came out, nor did I own Danny Wilson or even Swing Out Sister or anything like that. It was, you know, as you get older and you get less concerned about being cool and you just kind of, nostalgia really is weighs heavier than it did when you were younger. I went, I've gone back and realized how much I appreciate these bands now more than I even did then. I, fashionably, I did want to look like them, but I wasn't, I didn't buy the Breathe album when it came out. Okay. Uh, I got it much later. I may have dubbed it off somebody and had it on one side of a TDK. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Uh, you know, I don't probably, I don't remember, but anyway. Was that your blank tape of choice, TDK? Uh, I would buy whatever. I had millions and it didn't, I didn't care. TDK, like okay. the metal ones, felt oh. like you were, you know, the, they were, they said they were metal, but right. those actually were. Right. I don't know. I would, it was usually, my mom worked, she was the main office manager of a shopping mall and she, I would just ask her to bring something home with her. Oh, okay. And so she would just grab something most cases. Anyway, yeah, I just, uh, I think this stuff is fun. Now, let me tell you about the band. So I've been trying to get their lead singer, David Glasper, on the show for three years. And apparently he married a woman from Vietnam. And I don't know how long ago. And apparently that woman, that woman's family has a farm in Southeast Asia. And they moved there and she died. I don't know how long ago she died. They have a kid, I think one kid. I don't know how old that kid is. I think he might be in his early 20s. And David Glasper lives on that farm. He is a total technophobe. He doesn't know how to use cell phones or email or the internet or anything like that. And a few years ago, I don't know what motivated it, probably needing some money. They finally kind of started a davidglasper.com website and he put out some YouTube videos. And I think he was trying to maybe sell like unreleased tracks, you know, stuff like that, demos and everything. And for a certain amount of money, he would mail, you would get mailed this care package of unreleased David Glasper stuff. Look, everything we've said about Breathe to this point actually doesn't matter. What you need to do is go on YouTube, <laughs> look up David Glasper, and you will see some of the strangest videos you will ever see. He lives in some strange little farmhouse. He sits there shirtless most times with a giant dragon tattoo on one of his shoulders, and he recites poetry. And one of the videos, my favorite one, is the one where he's sort of asking you to support him and like go to his website. And he clearly doesn't know what the WWW stands for. And so he says something like, worldwide... Did you see Cobra yeah. Kai recently? <laughs> uh, no, no, I haven't watched it yet. Oh, okay, well, there's a Johnny Lawrence doesn't really know what the internet is, and so he's like, just go to www period Cobra Kai period com. It's that kind of thing where the guy's just so clueless. Oh my gosh! He doesn't know what Amazon is. He doesn't uh, know what dot com means. It is so strange. He struggles to grab a verb. He's like, says somebody posted something for him, and he's like, "Is that the verb that you use?" Yes. And yeah, the I, every time he's talking, there's always a rooster behind him constantly. Yes, <laughs> yes. I heard that yes. as well. They are. They're quite some entertaining videos. So anyway, the point is, if you've ever wondered where the guy who sang Hands to Heaven is now, he has kind of lost a lot of his mind and he's living on a farm in Southeast Asia with a giant dragon tattoo on his shoulder <laughs> and no shirt on. Yeah. He, he looks like he's still fit. I mean, he's not like, yeah, he you know, good. doesn't have a pot and belly or anything. No, but. no. And in all honest, honesty, he could, if you wanted to, he could have a career being a book on tape, audiobook 
yes. reader because when he reads his poetry, he has oh. a really good voice for right. narrating. And stuff. Yeah, that poem that that we watched. I guess he wrote that as well. I thought yeah. it was a really good poem, and I thought he delivered it very well. And yeah. that, that's hard to do. You know, reciting poetry is not always very easy, but it, mm-hmm. I guess it helps if you write it too. You're nice. I thought I was just listening to a madman. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was kind of just distracting, and he spent about 45 seconds picking something off of his chest as yeah. he was talking. It's late. It's yeah. Late. Oh yeah. my gosh, yes. So yeah, he is a madman. I just thought he had a good voice for reading yeah. a book. <laughs> Maybe the, the second time, just listen to it and don't look at it. Yeah, I'll try that. <laughs> anyway, that's the Breathe story, if you're ever wondering. The guitarist name's Marcus Lillington. He runs some company in London. I've tried getting him on the podcast. He turned me down. Uh, the drummer, I believe, is dead. And the bass player is also sort of off the grid, but he posts... So the videos to Jonah, we can do them briefly because they're really inconsequential. He posts some Breathe-related videos on YouTube and has a YouTube channel. I tried messaging him on there to see if I could interview him and uh, never heard back. That's too bad. Yeah. Anyway, so there's these two videos. One of them... They're both okay. I think that the second video, the one that the guy in the band posted, is Mm -hmm. better, but... At least it has better potential because of the the content of it. But the edits and the cuts were just oh terrible. Cut very quick and random. Yeah, it felt almost a little homemade, like someone's using some filter or something, some new editing tool on their fun little new toy. Look, we can make the background purple and yellow, and we can <laughs> merge things in and out. We kind of swirl them around. It'll be great, you know. That's kind of like that. The other one doesn't even feel real. The it's a performance video with this with a really kind of a beautiful woman in her cut in between but the woman looks almost like she's from the 90s and the band is clearly very much in the 80s at one point she's wearing a fish hat did you notice that no yeah one of the hats she's wearing is a gold fish laying over the top of her head <laughs> oh my gosh so- Strange. I missed that. I'll have to go back and check that out. Now that was yeah. that was the video that actually would have been on like VH1 for this song. I, or I, I sort of was getting the opinion. I can't see now. I can't remember if I saw a video without her. I thought I saw a video that was just a straight performance video, and that that was some sort of video made later that just intercut scenes of this sexy woman in it. Sarah and I talked about this before on our show, and I, and I ended up cutting it out. Oh, but oh yeah, that was something that I was finding for a lot of these songs. Howard Jones and Depeche Mode. People were just making videos for the songs and cutting pictures of like Victoria's Secret models and stuff um, so, into the song, and that's sort of what I thought that was going on here. I didn't think that was an official video. Okay, I Ooh. wondered that same thing. I couldn't tell for sure so that's that's all i wanted to say about breathe showed a lot of promise looked good sounded great went off the rails very quickly and is now wasting away in a southeast asian farm so weird wow you just never know all right so that's up to our brings us up to our last song i guess a lot of pressure on me now because last week my song didn't go over all that well with the assembled group here so i'm hoping i can do a better job was that a was that kind of a pun oh no it was the assembly i like it so this week i went with well, a singer that I certainly love. He was the lead singer of Oingo Boingo in throughout the 80s and the early 90s. John talked to the drummer from that band early on in his podcast, The Vados. Oh, very cool. And this is Danny Elfman's solo, though, a song called Gratitude. Life's been so good to me. Has it been good to you? Has it been everything that you expected it to be? Was it as good for you as it was good for me? And was it everything that it was all set up to be? Now it's that gratitude. Oh, now it's that gratitude. 
So that song from the solo album Solo debuted on the Billboard Dance Club chart on January 26th of 1985, and it was on that chart for nine weeks, peaking at number 17. Wow. So it did pretty well as a dance song. No no luck anywhere in the world as a um, pop single. Really? It did not chart anywhere else? Nope. Hmm. Oingo Bungo was really a band that I think America was the only country that even paid slight attention to them. Yeah, and it's definitely Mm. more on the West Coast even. Right, definitely so. So, of course, now everybody in the world knows Danny Elfman because he has gone on to become an Emmy Award winner and a Grammy Award winner for his his scores for movie and television. He did, of course, the Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson Batman movie in 89. He did Nightmare Before Christmas, and he's he's done so many movies, Mission Impossible, Good Will Hunting. But at this point, he was the lead singer of a very odd performance art rock band called Oingo Boingo. So this song comes from what would have been Oingo Boingo's fourth album, if not for a label dispute. Oh. The only reason it was mm. it was an Elfman solo album is because they had signed with MCA, I think, and they were leaving their older label behind. And because he had this new deal for Oingo Boingo with a new group, he didn't want a final Boingo album to come out on the original label, whose name I can't think of, IRS Records, maybe. So he, even though the entire band is on the album, and he went out of his way to share songwriting credits with everybody in the band. So in case it became a hit, they would be taken care of. It came out as Danny Elfman. Wow. And when you look at it, you see everybody's name that you're used to if you're a Boingo fan at the time. So it was I've always a, wondered. It was a fake solo album? It was. Yep, exactly. And he said he, he designed it so there was no tour for it. He divided up those royalties, and he, he did not want a solo career. He was not interested in it. He felt he had to do it because of that new contract. In this song, we mentioned that he, or I mentioned uh, that he was very well known for movie soundtracks now. This song was actually Elfman's introduction to the world of movie soundtracks as it appeared on the soundtrack for Beverly Hills Cop. Wow. Oh my goodness. And that's sort of an interesting story how that happened. The director of that movie was a guy named Marty Brest, and Elfman knew him and had in fact written the soundtrack for his AFI student film when he was coming up through the ranks, learning his trade and everything. And so Elfman said he appreciated that his friend remembered him and came to him and said, like, do you want me to put one of your songs in in my movie? But he said it didn't really help raise the profile of himself or Oingo Boingo at all. And he said that any audience that they gained, he really feels that it was through their like hard work of touring, particularly the West Coast of, of the United States. The one thing that he says helped them gain a larger audience was they had the opportunity to open for the police. <laughs> and he said that did make an impact, he thought. Very cool. So Danny Elfman wrote a soundtrack for a film student movie. He did. Do you think that it was probably his first soundtrack ever? Probably. Wow. Probably. Yeah. That's kind of neat. And then that's eventually what he really went into doing. And that's what pretty much all he does now. Yep. But judging by what he was doing at the time, it's probably not an orchestral soundtrack like no. what you're thinking. It's probably like a, right, a yeah. weird rock kind of soundtrack yeah i'm not sure though avant-garde maybe do you remember you guys heard oh sorry sorry, go ahead john i was gonna ask if you guys have heard danny's album music for a darkened theater oh yeah i didn't know if it might be on there no forbidden zone no okay it could be around the same time it's not forbidden zone because forbidden zone was his brother Oh, that's true richard you're right richard i've seen that movie too i forgot yeah that's a really weird movie yeah but it's probably around that same time what were you gonna say colby do you remember what my first exposure to oingo boingo was i do <laughs> I have some notes. So my first exposure to Oingo Boingo, I ended up loving Boingo a lot. And it all stemmed from their appearance in the Rodney Dangerfield movie, Back to School. Mm-hmm. Because Rodney Dangerfield and his sons rip out the walls of their dorm room and turn it into one big room and then have a big party. And they hire Boingo to come play and they're playing Dead Man's Party. And that was the first time I ever heard it. Mm-hmm. I think I must have watched that movie on HBO one summer like 20 times. And that was my favorite part. So I told my friend Colby about this great song that I had heard by a band called Oingo Boingo. Do you know them? 
And then Colby told me. Well, yeah. <laughs> because Colby knew all the cool bands. Yeah, it's because uh, they had the song Grey Matter show up on a really, really cool television show called Putting on the Hits, <laughs> where the whole concept of the show was people would compete in lip syncing and they would do like different outfits and stuff like that. And these four guys put on goatskin pants and basically jumped around to the song Grey Matter. And that's it. Wow, that song is awesome. <laughs> but because these dudes were represented Oinko Boingo with these fur pants on, like I had no idea. Like the image of what this band was was completely different in my brain of mm. what they actually were. Uh-huh. You actually saw the band. I saw somebody doing something crazy <laughs> right. to their music. But Boingo, for those first three albums, they were pretty crazy too. They probably would have worn crazy pants like that. But I do remember that like Dead Man's Party was like the first album of what I consider like Boingo's musical period. And it was following up their first three albums, which I consider to be their noise period. Because mm. they're, they're still pop and they're rock, but they're very strange and they're not always melodic. I remember saying to you, I, I love Dead, Dead Man's Party. What was that song you said that you saw on TV? I'm going to go buy that album now and see if that's good. And you told <laughs> me the song. So I bought the album Nothing to Fear, which was their second album. And it was very different than Dead Man's Party. But I, I do like it. It's, it's a very different sound, but it is a very good album. Gray, Gray Matter is on there. Insects is on there. <laughs> which we still quote. Yeah, we, we sing that one a lot. <laughs> So Boingo is an interesting band because they go through so many different periods of sound. Even in their music period, their last album, which came out in the early 90s, it seemed like a reaction to like the grunge scene that was happening where they kind of, they lose their brass section, which is one of the main trademarks of Boingo Boingo, in my opinion. And they get a much heavier kind of grungy guitarist and like a young kid who's noticeably younger than everyone else. Yeah. And it's still a really good album. It's just different. One little bit of trivia about that. Apparently what lent it. Uh, a lot of that darkness was that Danny Elfman had lost his faith. Apparently he had become a Christian and something happened that uh, he didn't like it anymore. It's bad experiences. And so that mo- that album was his like railing against Christianity album. Really? I have to admit, though, as I say that his brother was a Scientologist. Wow. I don't know that oh. Danny Elfman was, but uh, his brother's son is Bodie Elfman, who's married to Jenna Elfman who's the actress that was in Dharma and Greg. Right. Yeah. And they're devout Scientologists. So that's what I've heard, though, is that the the Boingo album of the early 90s was Danny Elfman railing against a bad experience with Christianity. Well, huh. I can definitely see that in some of the themes of the songs. If you go through the lyrics, there's yeah. definitely a criticism of that that type of stuff. I like that you told us about Elfman embracing Christianity, at least for a while, because there's a song on their third album called The Cry of the Vados, which mm-hmm. is just sort of like a weird kind of instrumental. It's weird percussion and like jungle noises, but supposedly there are backwards Christian messages in it. <laughs> I've mm-hmm. always heard. And I, I was like, well, was, did he really believe that or was he just doing it because everyone else did backwards satanic messages? Mm-hmm. I always wondered. So evidently... Well, that, that might be the connection that you're yeah. looking for. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. So Gratitude, it kind of has a weird history. Different different versions of it appear on this album at different times, oddly enough. Oh, or, really? Depending on when you bought the album, you'll yeah. have a different version of the song? Yeah, mm. if you bought the album when it first came out, that those initial pressings, yeah. you get the original version, which has different background vocals and different guitar work, and there was a, a spoken word section in the middle of it. Oh, okay. And that version of the track soon disappears. Later pressings had a version that was released as the single, which was actually an edit of the 12-inch extended remix. Oh, and it's called, they call this the short mix, even oh. though it's actually longer than the original mix. Oh. <laughs> it's all very confusing. Yeah. It gets rid of the um, spoken word. It has a different ending. Okay. And different background vocals. So it's kind of crazy. Yeah, that is. It's very odd. 
it seemed like a lot of effort focused on a song that ultimately didn't really do much of anything chart wise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason I really like this song is that is because even though we get a lot of Steve Bartek's heavy guitar work in this song, uh-huh. especially in the middle and the guitar solo, you're getting a lot of electronic keyboard sounds. More so than you ever got with Boingo, who would always have those horns and the bass and everything. And since, you know, I was really into Vince Clark and Dead or Alive and Depeche Mode, all those keyboard bands, I really yep. like that. The rhythm is very simple. Uh, most of the time, it's just a drum fill in like every other beat, like on two and four or whatever. Yeah. The whole way through. And I like the sound of it. It seems like it should be kind of boring if it's just that the whole way through, but uh-huh. it does It does sound good. I don't know if it's the Vados or a drum machine. And as always, his vocals are awesome. He does an amazing job with the background vocals on this song. There's a part... I don't see. I don't know what the chorus is of this song. I looked at the lyrics and I still can't tell. I think it's the, in mm. the middle of a big tornado. Okay, part. All, right, all right, then that's the mm. part. Yeah, it, that's yeah. like there's 12 lines to that section. Yeah, so it's a really long chorus. But yeah. the background vocals in that part are awesome. Yeah, he's, he like re, he's mm-hmm. repeating himself, but in like a kind of really riffing. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. really cool it to is, listen it's to. Ve- it's very good. So he's yeah. always a great vocalist, but oh, I think I he really shines on this song. Yeah, this is a, a wonderful example of his vocal prowess. He's a great singer, but his songs are very hard to sing along to for that very reason, because he is just so, you know, the things he does, ooh, it's like, how do you sing along with that? So I won't say that they're the catchiest songs. You can sing some of them, but you cannot just sing along with them the whole way through. It's just not possible, mm-hmm. you know? And that's just a statement. That's not good or bad. I know that the vocals on the Oingo Boingo song on the rock band video game mm-hmm. are rated for difficulty five out of five it's like yeah. five devil faces so yeah. that means it's like one of the hardest songs yeah. in the game to sing i think i think we've tried it <laughs> it time, is hard a time or two yeah, yeah. but yeah because he's just kind of going all over the place which is you know he's really good i love his voice but i think he looks like a lunatic <laughs> and <laughs> i was shocked by the number of women and teenage girls even who were on the youtube page for this video saying how handsome and sexy they thought he was mm. in that video and i was like oh my gosh i can't see it they were like oh he's so hot oh he's so sexy and i thought no not for me no he's, his <laughs> voice is amazing i love his voice but oh, he's just yeah. weird <laughs> he's just <laughs> weird looking guy did boingo ever make their way through uh, salt lake city absolutely in fact i'm glad you asked because the one and only time i saw uncle boingo in concert was one of their very last shows Believe it or not, going back to lending some credence to what I said before, they were always huge in Salt Lake City. And so the week before their final show, which was their final show was Halloween night in, I want to say, 1994. Yep, yep. that's right. On October 24th of 1994, they played Salt Lake City because that was the, they knew it was their farewell tour. And so they were only hitting like their biggest hubs around the country. And Salt Lake City was one of them. And I went to that show. And cool. um yeah, so it was it was great. Now I'm I'm like you a little bit, Brian, in that their earlier kind of almost more punkier, harder stuff. I don't like as much. I mean, I I like it, but it's sometimes a little too uh, too aggressive for me. I like when they got a little bit more musical along the Dead Man's Party and the first Boingo album. Yeah, that's great. my favorite. That's my favorite of their album. Yeah, that's yeah, probably the first one that I was introduced to as well. And I think some of that might have to do with the influence of scoring music, uh, scoring movies that was starting to happen. I've always felt too. They just showed up on so many soundtracks. You know, Bachelor Party. Uh, mm-hmm. Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Weird Science. You mentioned Back to School. That's when I learned about them too. And I've always had this feeling, them and Devo were like this, in that I've always wondered if maybe bands that should have been big but never were quite ma- you know, making a big enough splash 
were being thrown on numerous soundtracks back in the day as a way to like, well, maybe this will work. Maybe this song will kind of put them over the edge. It gets them better exposure. And like with Devo, it never quite got there, you know? right. But I think one of Danny Elfman's first scoring jobs was this Emilio Estevez movie called Wisdom. And the song Home Again, which is the first track on the Boingo album, is in that movie. Oh, really? It's so good. Yeah, it's so good. And I think that's what starting that his mind opening up to scoring films and stuff was what was sort of grounding his musical ideas into something into things that were a little more melodic and tuneful versus the earlier stuff. Even though I love that band so much, All, everything they do is fun. But the more tuneful it got, the better it got. I agree. I think that the thing that's great about gratitude is that it's just as soon as you hear it start. I felt relieved when you told me that it was actually Oingo Boingo, but Danny Elfman had to do it differently mm-hmm. because of contract stuff, because that's, it just sounds like, oh, that's Oingo Boingo is like, I think of Oingo Boingo. Like everything about that song just hits you with that weird science type yeah, era yeah. where. Yeah. The classic era, you could the, call it. The bouncing noises in the background yep. Yep. and all of the stuff that he does. And it's just that I just watched the video again while we were talking and I'm like, I think that the thing that amazes me is that something that Sarah was talking about. About the combination of all of the crazy frenetic stuff that they used to do on stage with this guy who is basically rooted behind a keyboard and yet just as animated because of how his face moves. <laughs> it's just. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he's so strange and yet compelling in his strangeness. You know? yeah. I really like this. Yeah, this is a great song. I'm glad you chose it. I'm getting a lot better reception on this this yeah. song than the last one. Yes, you well, did. Th- this song yeah, has much a pulse. So. Oh. <laughs> this, yeah. this song has a good bouncing beat. Yeah. We, and it bounces so much that we even see the, how a room bouncing. That is an amazing part of the video, Sarah. I'm glad you... Yes, you I thought we could segue into the video by there. kind of... Uh, the video is entertaining. It's made up of all these different sections. Oh, yeah. But that is the best part. There's a poker game going on in this very overcrowded room with the sofa and the devil. The devil is like watching the poker game. And the, the whole corner. house is shaking with yeah. the beat of the music. Right, right. It is the the best part simply because of Elf, the way Elfman moves, like the really exaggerated way he sneaks a peek at the guy next to him, his cards, his yeah. hand of cards. And then when he gets caught, like the way he backs up, but he's still looking, <laughs> they're just staring at each other. Uh-huh. Like, and the guy knows he caught him doing it. That yeah. was Elfman's brother, Richard, actually, the guy whose cards he looked at. Then like the look on his face as he's just dealing cards around the table, like sort of half paying attention. Like, yeah. you know, the cards are just going everywhere, laying in face up and everything. And he's just doing those weird faces. But like the other parts in the video, like in the first part, when he sort of wakes up and there's an interrogation light, light running his face. Yeah, yeah. He's basically acting like the Joker. Mm. Yes. I can totally picture him playing the Joker. When, yes. when uh, you first started uh, getting me to rewatch the Gotham series and uh-huh. that red-haired kid that eventually becomes the Joker, right? I always thought of Danny Elfman from the first time I ever saw that kid act. In, uh, oh, really? In uh, yeah, Shameless. Shameless, yeah. yeah. I, it's like, mm. This is like this weird, slightly better-looking version of Danny Elfman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and I think there were some comments on that video about, yeah, Danny Elfman should have been the Joker in the 89 Keaton movie. <laughs> it would have been awesome. It would probably have been, a, well, certainly a different performance from Nicholson. Took, took it in a whole different direction. He would have been too evil for that? You're right, yes. Yeah. And and if you look around that video and that card scene, especially there's there's band members from Boingo right. all throughout the video. Yeah, we see, uh, don't we see Steve bopping by on his guitar one time? Yep, Steve plays the guitar yep. solo. Yep. Yep. I didn't see the Vados. I saw some of the other guys. And one thing that I thought was really striking, it's just a very minor thing, but in the beginning, that part of the song that John mentioned before that sounds like a pipe. Like, yes. Um, and the, like, like circus. Yeah. yeah. And Elfman's sort of laying there like he's asleep with his, his head down on a table that has water on the surface of it. Yeah. And there's like a pan. Is he a satyr? Is that how you say it? He's playing the instrument. The That image... It looks like a painting almost with the water on the table, the way it looks. It's, uh-huh. just, it's just very pleasing to see. And then it immediately is spoiled when he sits up and looks all freaky and stuff. But uh, <laughs> I just thought that was a nice a nice image. Yeah, I don't know who directed that video. I did not go and look that up, but I'd like to know who put that together because I, I think it's, it's pretty well done. I think it's interesting given what John was talking about with the religion uh, yes. thing, the the revival part. Where oh, he's uh-huh. like the yeah, yeah. faith healer kind of guy. Right. And then you got the choir in the background. Yeah, I wonder... It's it's interesting because if he really was into religion at that time and doing the parody of it, like, hmm, that's an okay. Or maybe yeah, he was I don't know. Maybe, I, maybe he's just very anti Christianity. But I seem to I feel like I did hear that that second Boingo album was motivated by some really negative experience he had within Christianity or maybe with other Christians. I'm not exactly sure, but it hmm. was that was like him just saying I can't take it anymore. Yeah, that's so interesting. Last time I had a weird fact about the assembly song. This time, no weird fact, because everything about the song in the video is weird. (laughs) So I couldn't really add to it. Yeah, it's it's already weird. There's nothing more to add. All right, well, that is... The end of side two and the completion of our 19... No, let me start that sentence wow. over. And the completion <laughs> of our 2018 summer mixtape. Of songs from the 1980s. Of songs from the 1980s. Yep. Yes. Pretty cool. I think we did a pretty good uh, pretty good job picking some interesting songs. This time you might actually have a shot at some votes. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we got to post a poll up on Facebook and Twitter and get people to say who picked the best song for side two of the mixtape. Yeah. And last week, I'm evidently, I'm going to get, get romped, I guess. Oh, <laughs> total railroading is going to happen. Oh, man. Yeah. I'm not looking forward to that. Uh. I'm mentally prepared to lose this week, though. Mm. You know, I wouldn't I, be surprised if Sarah takes both weeks with the reflex and hip sway. Those yeah. are both great songs. I think you might be right. Last time, what Colby was the number. We got so many compliments on Colby's choice of the Pixies and the Church. People love that. No one wanted to talk about any other songs. But this time, I think Sarah is going to be the. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. I did pretty well on our Forgotten Eighties uh, tape too because with Aztec Camera. Yeah, I got mm-hmm. got everyone excited about Aztec Camera. I don't know. I'm I love a, them. I'm on a bit of a roll, so we'll see. We we'll, we'll see, see what happens. So, John, once again, thank you very much for sitting in with us. I know it went longer than you probably had thought it would, but it was it was a treat for us to get to talk to you, talk with you and um, get some information from you on all these great groups. And like I said, I listen to your show every week. I didn't listen to the Bowie special episode yet simply because I was getting ready to do this, but I have it downloaded and I'll, I'll listen to it it's tomorrow. Okay. Just so everyone knows, if they want to find the Hustle podcast with John Lamoureux, how do they do that? I would just go into whatever your podcatcher of choice is, iTunes. I use something called Overcast. Whatever it is, go in there and look for the, just type in the Hustle podcast. And it's a, as you said, a beautiful yellow thumbnail with a, like a record in the middle of it. You meant, you kind of alluded to this too earlier, Brian. I always just encourage people start with some band you already like, you know, right? look for something you already like. If you find that you like 
our style, then keep going. If you don't, then just pick and choose whatever you know bands interest you. I will say, I don't know when this is coming out, Brian, but the next month are pretty much all British bands from the 80s. Nice. Oh, cool. Ooh, yeah. That sounds promising. Yeah. A couple of them are more on the pop side than the new wave alternative side. But yeah, the next five weeks are devoted to uh, British bands of the 80s that we all know. Nice. Ooh. Very nice. Yeah. I'll be looking forward to that. Yeah, that's exciting. And I think a lot of uh, people that listen to this podcast would really pick up on that and enjoy it. That's right. I would think so. Well, Hope then, so. then this is really good timing for you to appear on our show. <laughs> wow. Wow. Good work. Wow. How about that? We are truly delighted and, and honored that you could join us. It's been a, it's been great. Same to me. You're my uh, you're my favorite podcast, so I'm honored to be here. Oh, thank you very much. You're probably my favorite as well. Aww. We love each other. Look at the, that. We do. The it's mutual a admiration. Society. It is a great oh. podcast. Yeah. I, I learned so much from your podcast. That's that's why I like doing this show because I learn stuff about the bands that I thought that I knew everything about. But every time I listen to your show, I learn a ton of stuff that I run back and then tell Sarah about. Hey, this is what I heard today, and this. Is yeah. What so that's what makes it so great. I might have to start listening to it on my own though, just so he doesn't have to tell me all the time. I'll be really offended if you don't, Sarah. Oh dear. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't care. I don't care what you do. And Colby, I love spending time with you, as you already know. We've been hanging out since sixth grade. <laughs> Thanks for making time to come hang out with us today. Always always fun to do this. I only got to spend about 12 hours with you yesterday, yeah. so it was a treat to get to see you today. I know. I mean, what is a 24-hour period without most of it being consumed by me? Yeah. <laughs> so, folks, find us on Facebook or iTunes, the, the Hustle and Permanent Record both, and let us know what you think about our podcast. Let us know that you like it, and five-star ratings are awesome. Oh, yeah. Well, we would... <laughs> Really appreciate some five-star ratings. So thanks for the time. We hope you enjoyed the summer mixtape. Folks, we'll we'll see you, uh, I guess, in a week's time. Maybe we'll finally get around to talking about Duran Duran like we promised a month ago. Let's keep him guessing, though. <laughs> Let's keep him guessing. Thanks again, John. Bye. I will